Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to talk about trends in a subject matter that has the power to affect every single one of us. That's because this topic has a lot to say about our individual and societal health. What topic is that? It is nutrition, diets, and dieting. To help us get the latest on trends in nutrition, diets, and dieting, we've brought on an outstanding expert in those areas. She's Amy Goodson. Amy Goodson is a registered dietitian and certified specialist in sports dietetics. She focuses on overall health, wellness, and sports nutrition. Amy has worked with the Dallas Cowboys, Texas Rangers, TCU Athletics, Ben Hogan Sports Medicine, Dairy Farmers of America, and more. She's the author of the Sports Nutrition Playbook, a play-by-play on sports nutrition for athletes, parents, coaches, and trainers. Its portable flipbook size is perfect for a gym bag or weight room. Amy is also the co-host of Swim, Bike, Run, Eat, and nutrition contributor to retired NFL player Donald Driver's book, The 3D Body Revolution. With a bachelor's degree in communications and a master's degree in exercise and sports nutrition, Amy is passionate about marrying the two to provide quality, science-based nutrition information through speaking, media, writing, and consulting. Amy is an ambassador spokesperson for a variety of brands and a media dietitian for RDTV, where she does food and nutrition TV segments nationwide. Amy has over 850 media placements in a variety of TV, radio, and print outlets. Well, hi, Amy. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have such an expert on the show. In fact, what I've heard is that the only person that Tom Brady turns to for guidance and wellness is you. Is that true? You know, I would like to take credit, but I actually can't. He tend, Whatever he's doing, though, it's working for him, apparently. 43 years old, winning the Super Bowl. It's working, whatever he's doing. It is pretty remarkable, I'll tell you. Can you please tell our listeners, Amy, a little bit about your background and how and when you first became interested in health, wellness, and sports nutrition? So I was a dancer growing up. So dance was really active, got into college, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I actually have a degree in communications because I really was uncertain what I wanted to do. And my mom was like, well, you're really good at talking. You're really good at memorizing things. And you're a good presenter and you can do that in any field. So I started there and I loved exercise. So I became a group exercise instructor, personal trainer, and I actually had a minor in exercise physiology for no good reason, but because I liked it. And somewhere along the way, my senior year in college, I decided... I had a lot of interest in exercise and nutrition. 
And I went to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. And one of the two programs that were a master's level program in exercise and sports nutrition was in Denton, about 45 minutes away. Yes. So I decided to go to graduate school there. And that's really where my love of the, we'll call it the combination of nutrition and exercise happened. Went to grad school. It's a little bit longer of a process because I had to do all my undergrad nutrition as well. And then got out and very fortunately got a job working at a sports medicine facility. Mm. And from there, the rest is kind of history. I worked there for 10 and a half years. And throughout my time there, I spent 10 and a half years with TCU athletics as a sports dietitian. I worked for the Texas Rangers for six years with all their minor league teams for the Dallas Cowboys for four and a half gazillions of middle school and high school athletes and everyday exercisers. And actually my first professional athletes to work with were PGA tour players. So between PGA tour to track and field to professional football, baseball, soccer, hockey. uh, And right now I'm working with a cricket player. So, you know, anything goes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the short story. I've spent a lot of time in sports nutrition and then have a real passion for public speaking and media. So in my later years, I I did a lot of it in my early years, just because if you would talk about nutrition, people in the news would listen to you. And I loved it. So I did it for the major hospital system that our sports medicine facility was connected to. And then as I started working on my own, I really made it a bigger part of my business. And so now I get to do food and nutrition TV segments and lots of public speaking. And so it's a lot of acting on your toes talking about nutrition and that excites me. So that's kind of where I sit now and then still do a bunch of consulting in the sports nutrition space. Well, what I like about all that is you are combining the passions that you have. And if people listening who are younger particularly can find the passions that are just coming almost naturally you as Amy has, you're hopefully going to be in very good shape in your career because that will drive you. And, you know, the thing about nutrition is everybody eat. So people are interested. A lot of people are really well-informed with misinformation. And so there's a huge space to be able to educate people, to be able to set them straight, maybe from myths that they have been told along the way, and then also just to help people. So whether it's a professional athlete or the mom next door, a lot of people are really confused about nutrition. And so being able to talk about it. And then of course, for me, my love of public speaking and media, really marrying them together to help provide science-based nutrition information in a consumer-friendly way that people can understand is a lot about where my passion lies because people just get so confused over what they see in the media, what they see on Instagram, what they see on a magazine cover. And there's a real space for registered dietitians to come in and be a knowledge base, but then also make it really real life and realistic for people to be able to apply on a daily basis. I completely agree with you about all of that. We're going to hit you on the myths side of things going forward. And I also want to add two quick things. The first thing is my good friend who I mentioned to you, Amy, previously from Dallas, big Cowboys fan. Of course, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. I am not. He went to college in Denton, Texas. Did he go to UNT? He sure did. The second thing is, in my first career, the most satisfying part of my career 
which I didn't realize until I looked back at everything, was the time when I worked in the Medicare program and people had questions. I felt great that I had that knowledge base and you have it in an area where even more people would have questions. Looking forward is named that because we do like to look forward. And of course, we like to think about looking forward in a more upbeat way. Right. But first, we like to look a little bit backwards. So as you think about the last couple or so decades, what would you say have been some of the key developments in the areas of nutrition, diets, and dieting, Amy? I would definitely say one of the biggest is that we've come to really individualize nutrition to people. So where we used to just globally make a lot of statements, and, and obviously there are still global health recommendations, whether it be countrywide or worldwide or whatever that is, but working with people, we dial in a lot more tightly on their specific needs, their food likes, dislikes, schedules, realizing that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and something that works for somebody, the same size person, same age, we could do to them and it may not be the same. So I definitely think number one, the individualization of nutrition. Number two, I think we've started to look more at, it's not like one nutrient or one food that causes a problem or makes things better. We're looking more at an eating pattern. So even now, if you look at the dietary guidelines that just came out, we're more looking at the bigger pattern of how someone eats versus like what they ate yesterday at lunch. We don't nitpick that, I don't think quite as much. And while some people do still look at like specific vitamins or minerals or whatever that is, we're looking at it as a bigger picture and how someone eats on a regular basis, which allows us to determine probably more about their health and more about how they're going to do maybe later in life or whatnot. So I think it's looking more at trends and looking at where someone's come from along the way. So I think those are two pretty big developments. You know, we still stick in the diet world. Diets are still popping up. They've popped up for decades. They'll still continue to pop up. But I do think that there is a more wellness focus, maybe even holistic approach of like eating whole foods and really trying to go back to maybe what was a few decades ago, especially now. You know, it's funny. I heard a colleague of mine who's more my mother's age say once that all these millennials want to eat farm to table and most of them have never been on a farm and they don't know how to set a table. So it's interesting <laughs> because we really want, I think they have, there's an innate need to want to go back. Like how did we eat before in this wholesome way? But it's interesting how that's kind of shaped in our current day and age. But I do think that there's a draw to go back to that whole food, knowing where your food came from. That's a big thing now. So knowing where did, not only what does it taste like, they want to know where was the chicken raised or yes. was the cow fed grass or corn, you know? And for a long time, that wasn't a big thing. That wasn't, the, definitely wasn't a bigger focus. So I think the individualization, number one, looking more at more global eating patterns. And I think people now just have a more wellness approach of trying to figure out more about their food than just the taste or what it has or what it does. Those are excellent points. I would like to bring up something with you and maybe you could tie it into the next question. When I was growing up, the big thing was the food pyramid and what it looked like. So my question is, and this may relate to the food pyramid, maybe not. 
as you said earlier, Amy, there's a lot of confusion out there about what's good to eat, what we shouldn't eat, and what will give us optimal health and what might make us sick and how we can gain weight, or more often it's how we can lose weight. What would you say are the biggest myths about this whole area? There are definitely a lot of myths out there. Go and for it. Who you're talking to, you know, the myth could be really crazy or maybe not so much. I think one of the ones, one of the myths that is the most frustrating to registered dietitians is that people think that if you just cut out a whole food group, everything will be better. I don't, and pick the person in the food group, cut out carbs. Oh, everything will be better. Cut out fat. Everything will be better. Don't eat dairy. Everything will be better. And the reality is that's not the case. You know, a lot of people, now, if you have a health issue or an intolerance or an allergy, by all means, cut out a food group or a food. But I think there is a huge myth that like carbs make you fat or this does that or that. And the reality is no one food or food group makes anyone fat, makes anyone lose weight, causes any health, you know, like there's not one food that causes type two diabetes. It's probably a, a pattern of eating. You know, we're going to look at your family history. More people are going to be predisposed to that. So I think one of the biggest myths is that just cutting out a food or a food group is going to solve all of your problems. Mm. Kind of similarly, I think another myth is that going on a diet is going to fix all of your problems. You know, I'm a pretty disciplined girl. My father's very disciplined and I definitely got his genetic makeup. Like I don't care how tired I am. I get up and work out. It doesn't matter. I'll eat, you know, what I'm supposed to eat. Like I'm just kind of a disciplined person in that space. Yes. And a lot of people cling to diets thinking that's going to solve all of their problems. And for a few weeks, it might help them, but then they go right back and you see people just cling to this myth that like diets solve problems. And I'm like, they don't, because what I think is interesting, we have more diets, more diet books, more diet trends than ever on the market. And the obesity rate is going up, not down. Wow. So clearly there's a disconnect there because the information, yes. the products, the foods are there and we're not. So I definitely think another myth is just in that space of that diets can fix my problem and that you should jump on the next trend because it's trending. And the reality is while it may not be what everyone wants to hear, it's that balance and discipline of eating well and exercising. You can splurge a little, but you know, not all the time and really sticking to that day in, day out, day in, day out. And that's where people start to see benefit. And I think people tend to cling to the trend or the myth that they just heard versus getting back to what we know the nitty gritty is because the nitty gritty is a little boring. Now, no, everyone thinks balance is so boring. And, you know, you mentioned the food guide pyramid. Yeah. Great. You know, who eats by a pyramid though? So now we have my plate. So my plate puts it on a plate and it shows you make up some of your plate vegetables, some fruit, some protein, some grains, add a dairy. And I think that that's a lot more realistic of a way because we eat on plate, not on pyramids. Yes. But it's funny because people will go, that's so basic. That's so balanced. I mean, it's boring. And I'm like, but no one's doing it. <laughs> and right. so I think if most people would get back to the basics, we would probably see a lot of improvement in overall health, wellness, disease risk. But the reality is, is it takes some discipline. And back to what we kind of the topic of the question, most people try to jump on the next bandwagon, whatever that is. So 
I think that's a great answer to a very challenging question. And I do want to add to what you're saying about all the books and the knowledge, and yet there's an obesity issue. And what you said near the end there, Amy, which is something that Thomas Huxley said. He was the grandfather, I believe, of Aldous Huxley. Thomas Huxley said, the great good of life is not knowledge, but action. Application of what you know. An application. You have to put it into practice. And for, you know, the world we live in, unfortunately, just makes it really easy not to do that. And so obviously, and oftentimes, the easiest choice isn't always the best for you or the healthiest choice. And we get wrapped up in what we're doing right now. And most people will choose the easier choice. Yes, I agree. Now you work with individuals and organizations in many parts of the globe. And what I'm curious about is if you could briefly comment on how do you see the rest of the world that you've interacted with treat these subjects of diets, dieting, and nutrition? Are they, and I know it will vary. We can't say one country is the same as another country. Some countries unfortunately suffer from malnutrition, don't have enough food. That's a problem here now that's been exacerbated by COVID. But in general, if you had to generalize, what are you seeing in terms of the rest of the world that you've worked with? Maybe you could talk a little bit about where you're working. What do you see? I have trained probably in the ballpark of seven to 800 dietitians in the Middle East. So I have been contracted by a company that's based out of Beirut that provides continuing education to dietitians. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea how many dietitians were over there. I was baffled. Like they, I usually have a hundred people in my training every single time. And they are typically most of, I would say 95% of them are women over there in the Middle East. So I have taught in Beirut, Lebanon twice. I have taught in Dubai. Wow. In Jordan, in Kuwait, and then in Jeddah and Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Wow. So I've definitely had some cultural experiences. I go there by myself. The team that I teach for meets me there. So I have had the opportunity, I would definitely say, to work with a variety of dietitians over there. And you know, most of them are very intelligent. English is usually their third language. They speak Arabic, they speak French, and they speak English. Wow. And I think one of the most interesting things is that they seem to have the exact same problems that we have in the US. The questions they're asking me, I'm like, these are the same questions that I hear all of the time. So I do think the dietitians that I have met, so I haven't really educated the consumer over there. I've more educated the professional. Yes. They're educated. Most of them at least have a college degree. Some could have a master's level degree. In Beirut specifically, there's an American university and a lot of them will go to school there. And A, I think they're educated. B, they are, no pun intended, really hungry for the information. So they're very interested in what we're doing, what I think the times that I've gone over there, primarily except for once, I've taught on sports nutrition, sports and fitness, like exercise nutrition. And they have a lot of questions because many of them don't have the opportunity to be trained in that area. Like we have a lot of opportunity for that in the U.S. 
And how do you apply that to just exercising person? But there's obesity is a huge problem over there too. When I went to Kuwait, I was floored. They told me that that was one of like the top five obese countries in the world. I was like, what? It's so hot here. Isn't everybody sweating all the time? I was there in June. It was like 120 degrees. Yeah. And so I thought it was really interesting. So I think the probably the thing that I expected the least is that they would have all of the same problems that dietitians in the United States have. They're asking me very similar questions about people that have very similar problems. And I made a joke speaking at something the other day. I said, you know, I used to say this is the way the American diet was like fast food, all of this. And I've got to tell you, I flew into Saudi Arabia early one morning and there was a Kentucky fried chicken. And I thought, <laughs> oh, wow, this is a global situation. And so it's interesting to see how other parts of the world, while very different, actually a lot of us have some of the same problems, I would say. That is interesting. And we're probably going to come back to that later, Amy, when we talk about the different kinds of diets, because some of those diets emanate from other countries. Mm -hmm, 100%. But let's bring us up to the present day and the COVID situation. In your opinion, what impact is COVID having on our diets, on nutrition, on wellness, on dieting? What do you see happening out there? I think a few things, both positive and probably negative as sure. well. So one of the positive things that I see is people are just way more aware people that weren't very aware of nutrition and food and vitamin D or whatever it is, they are now very aware. They're very aware of maybe eating healthier. They're very aware of other wellness practices, like just simply washing your hands, all of these types of things. So I definitely think that COVID has probably increased overall health and wellness awareness and also in the nutrition space. And I think it's interesting because what was happening at the beginning of COVID to what is happening now from a nutrition perspective is not the same. Mm. So at the very beginning, everyone was a little nervous that food wasn't going to be around. People were shopping for everything. No one, no one was leaving their house. And so all of a sudden people were cooking three meals a day. They came up with, you know, 1500 recipes with beans, <laughs> you know, they are cooking <laughs> families were going back to eating together because they had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> they were at home. Yeah. And so I think there was some positivity there, like where people that always went out to eat for a while were forced to cook and were forced to be back in the kitchen and maybe forced to start looking at healthier patterns, getting creative in the kitchen, getting kids in the kitchen. A lot of the things that we promote as dietitians to try to improve overall health and nutrition education, which is a lot of family meals, teaching kids how to cook, getting them in the kitchen with you. So I think that that was a lot of positive going on at the beginning. I know that there was a little bit of a scarcity mindset, but I do think it got people back in the kitchen, back doing stuff. My mom, I stayed with my parents for a while, you know, during the tight, tight lockdown. My mom's like, I have never been, spent so much money at the grocery store in all of my life. We're eating here all the time. <laughs> and I mean, like I have a niece and a nephew that are little kid, little kids, and they live yeah. right on the road from my parents. So my mom's like, we've never met, bought so much milk and eggs to save our lives. So I do think that that was some positivity. It forced people to be at home in the kitchen and, you know, having family meal time. Then COVID fatigue hit in. Mm. <laughs> uh, once restaurants started opening back up, or at least, you know, the different where you can order and get it brought in. I think all of the sudden, 
people were ordering in food more, starting probably abandoning the cooking theme and they're at home all the time. So a lot of people are snacking more. They're probably gaining weight. You know, I heard it called the quarantine 15. I've heard it's called a lot of things, but think of what else was happening. Many people weren't being as active. So they weren't moving as much. They were sitting at home. They were snacking. Obviously, we've, I am not an expert in this, but we've all heard on the news about mental health and depression and isolation and loneliness. And a lot of those things lead to bad health, wellness, and nutrition practices. People will snack more. They'll rely on more junk food. They won't exercise. So I think it's done a lot of things. At the beginning, I think it was kind of a creativity, like, Everybody was cooking, yay, and everyone was doing it together. So everyone, it was like this kind of thing. Everyone's on Pinterest looking at recipes or whatever that is. But now that the fatigue is set in, I, I do probably think, I haven't seen a ton of research yet on it, that there's probably significant weight gain. We know people haven't been exercising mm. as much. So from that perspective, I would say it's probably ended in more negative effects just because of the nature of the situation. And like anything, it's gotten old. Those are great points. I like the way that you bifurcated it into the early stages and the later stages of it. Now, I may be taking you back out of the country again. Can you stand okay. it? You know, you need to do a little bit more traveling. Come on. Seriously. Okay. I was traveling like 70% of the time pre-COVID. And then I was on an airplane coming back from Portland, doing TV that morning. And they shut down the whole country when I was in an airplane. I was like, oh, fantastic. Okay, great. And then yeah. lie dormant, didn't get on an airplane again until December. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I, I believe it. A lot of people like you have seen those kind of changes. There are, I don't have to tell you, a lot of diets out there, different kinds of diets with different names. And it seems like in 2021, there are even newer ones cropping up. My question would be, if you were to size up the most common diets, the ones we hear about the most, some of them may be very trendy, certainly keto has been more trendy in the last year or so. How do they stack up? I know you said for sure no one size fits all, but are there diets where you would say, yeah, that's, you know, that could be a little better if you kind of do that or... I would not advise people to pursue that one in general, unless this, can you speak a little bit to that? So I'm going to take that twofold. I'm going to take it to what I think some of the most popular diets are right now. And also probably what the best diets are for you right now. So the most popular, the two that I have seen trending the most and that are still continuing on to trend are the keto diet, which you alluded to and also intermittent fasting. Every single time I meet a stranger, they ask me about intermittent fasting. I don't know where I am. I was doing, I was teaching a class. I told mentioned to the very beginning, like at to, and Lebanon, to Lebanon, 17 to 24 year old girls the other day on Friday. And they asked me about intermittent fasting. I was like, why do y'all need to know about intermittent fasting? So I definitely think both of those are still trending. They're still very popular. Back to what we said about the individualization, I think that it depends on who you are. Because let's say you're a person that's really overweight, maybe you have type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, not really an exerciser, haven't eaten well. And you say, I'm going to try intermittent fasting. I walk three times a week for 30 minutes. I'm trying to do that. 
And it really helps me to only eat between 11 and seven. Okay, I might be okay with that. I have an athlete that's, or a very heavy exerciser that's training at six o'clock in the morning, going to the gym for an hour and a half. They're going to work, they're doing all this stuff. Okay, I all of a sudden think intermittent fasting for them is not a good plan because they can't eat their recovery nutrition in. They're a good weight. And so I think from that individualization, people go, what do you think about that diet? I'm like, well, who am I talking to? Because my recommendation for one population group might be very different than another one. I do think too, even with keto, which, you know, at first keto was a lot of, you know, bacon and ranch, (laughs) but I do think many people have started to healthify keto in regards to like, instead of eating bacon and ranch, they're eating avocados and salmon and nuts, you know? So I do think there's healthier ways that you can do some of those diets that are maybe a little more extreme. My biggest challenge with keto is that it takes out most sources of fiber outside of vegetables because it takes out grains and fruit. And there's a lot of benefit to the fiber that we have for heart health, for gastrointestinal health. So that's where keto, I kind of am like, yeah, I don't know for a lot of people. But if you're, I mean, your blood sugar's through the roof and your cholesterol's sky high, hey, may not be a, a bad plan for a period of time and you can adapt that. So yeah. I think those two are probably still the most asked about, more trending diets. Now, when I look at the ones that are probably deemed the best options for a majority of people, number one this year that came out again is the Mediterranean diet. So the Mediterranean diet is grounded in fruits, vegetables, healthy fats, whole grains, fish, and then some dairy and, and less red meat and less higher fat meat, let's say. Now, I'm be real honest with you. I am a beef eating, egg eating, red wine drinking dietitian. Like, I eat it all. But a lot of that is- You're from Texas, you're from Texas, come on. I am from Texas, yeah. A lot of people think dietitians are eating chicken and kale all day. I'm like, nah, I'm not actually. And so I don't really prefer kale and I would choose beef over chicken any day of the week. So, So a lot of that with the Mediterranean, grounded in fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, protein from fish. And I think it's more when you're choosing beef, you're choosing a lean cut and an appropriate portion size. I always remind people that, you know, a five ounce filet is very different than a 20 ounce ribeye, even though they're both called beef. How about, let me just stop you for a second with that before I lose it. How about grass fed beef versus not grass fed? Interesting fact for you. They're all grass fed. It's how they're finished the last few weeks of life. Grass fed versus corn fed. So it's really grass finished versus corn finished. And it changes the nutrient composition the tiniest amount that no one would really ever know. So relatively speaking, I would say just eat a lean cut of beef and watch your portion size. Doesn't really matter. They all ate grass the majority of their life. So so Mediterranean, I would say still takes the cake. And I'm very fortunate when I, in Lebanon, literally eating Mediterranean food on the Mediterranean Sea. Their food doesn't need salt, pepper. It's not spicy. It's not garlic. It's just amazing. I was telling those girls the other day, I'm like, I can never eat hummus in the United States again after eating it in Lebanon. You will never go back. So it was really cool to like actually get to experience real life Mediterranean food on the Mediterranean Sea. So I would say that one, you know, the DASH diet is still ranks number two, I think. The DASH is dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And it again is grounded in fruits, vegetables, low fat dairy, very lean meat, you know, limiting your fat intake and those types of things. So again, back to, remember we talked at the beginning, back to some of those basics, (laughs) cutting back on those really high fat meats and things of that nature. 
So the DASH diet still, I think, really takes the cake. And then pescatarian is when you don't eat chicken or beef or any of any of the other meats. You only eat fish as your protein. I have a cousin that's a pescatarian. Yeah. So flexitarian, like flexier muscles. So this was actually coined, my good friend actually coined this phrase and wrote the book, Don Jackson Blattner. She's a registered dietitian. Wow. Flexitarian is basically where it's a diet rich in plants. So kind of like a vegetarian, right? So rich in plants, but you can flex in beef or chicken or fish or whatever, you know, those animal proteins that you want. But the eating pattern is grounded in plants. So I like to often say plant-focused versus (laughs) plant-based. So it's a plant-focused diet, but it really kind of goes, it's a mixture of all of the things I was just talking about with DASH and with Mediterranean. But for some people that maybe want to eat more plant-focused or plant-based, the flexitarian diet can still allow you to like flex some of those animal proteins in. You just might be flexing them in less than someone who eats meat or chicken or whatnot every day. Okay. To look at that a little bit further, mm-hmm. you talked about beef and that very interesting fact about grass-fed versus corn-fed. Mm-hmm. Would the same thing apply, Amy, to organic chicken versus regular chicken. You know, in the world of organic, whether we're talking about animals or plants, like plants, it's obviously the types of pesticides and things that are used for organic in animals. It's more about how they're raised. So for a lot of people, I tell people that's a preference, you know, to do you prefer how an animal was raised or do you prefer this? You know, because people will say, okay, well, I'm only going to eat organic this, but they're also really pro health and wellness animal standards. And I'm like, okay, well, do you know that like in the world of like cows and milk, organic farms don't provide animals with antibiotics. So if a cow gets sick, they don't treat it. They send it to a conventional farm. So it's funny because like, there's a lot of, I think a miss of confusion there. So, I mean, if your kid or your dog was sick, you would give them medication and let them get better. And then you take them off of it. And so it's very interesting. So a lot of really in the animal world, organic is more based on how the animal was raised, not necessarily the nutrients of the animal meat. Same thing in fruits and vegetables. A lot of people think organic vegetables or organic fruits are better for you. I'm like, squash is squash. Now, if we're talking about what pesticides they treated the land with and how much of it, relationship to water, different story. And there's just so many different things for different farms. And I know a good amount about it, but I'm definitely not an expert. But a lot of it, you know, I I feel like some people feel like, oh, if I can't feed my family organic, I'm not doing good. Like I'm not, that's not good. And I'm like, I've, I've personally never bought an organic fruit or vegetable my whole life unless it was on accident or Mm. that was the only one. So like if I really wanted grapes and only organic grapes were available, I would buy grapes. So, you know, with fruits and vegetables, we tell people wash them really well, you know, for animals. Like I said, it's more about your preference of how they were raised. So some people are very passionate about certain animal standards and welfare and guidelines, and that's really important to them. So I always just try to caution people I just don't make the misunderstanding that sometimes the nutrition of a food is different. Organic milk has the same nutrition as conventional milk. An organic 
squash has the same nutrition as mm -hmm. conventional squash. Now it might be different based on what soil it was planted in, yeah. but that could be different parts of the world. So there's a lot of ins and outs that a lot of people just don't realize. And so I think it's just that to all that myths that we were talking about at the beginning, I think a little bit of knowledge to understand what you're comparing, because sometimes you're not comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges in the organic versus conventional world. So, Yeah, I'm glad that you touched on that. Thank you, because organic has become such a big thing, too. Now it's time to look forward, looking okay. forward. Okay, so as we look forward post-COVID, let's hope whether you're thinking about COVID, yes or not, Amy's got her fingers crossed, whether you're thinking about <laughs> post-COVID or not, over the next, say, five or so years, what changes do you think we might see in terms of our diets, the dieting that is being done out there, and in nutrition in general? This could be anything from the kinds of foods that come out to the foods that people eat. What are you seeing over the next several years? I wish I could say that I thought diets were going to go away, but I don't think they are. You know, I don't know. Keto and intermittent fasting keep trending. We'll see how long they trend. Usually things last for about a decade and then they kind of fizzle out and yeah. go away. Some last shorter than that. But I think because of the obesity rate in America and the world that we'll still see diets. I would love to think that people are going to learn more just about nutrition, but I think we'll still see diets. I'll tell you one of my top things that I'm noticing, and we'll say you heard it here on Looking Forward, You're that I have been noticing lately, and I have been telling all my dietitian friends this, I was like, you wait, I'm going to be right about this. So in the past, leading up to say the last year-ish, you know, if a food is low in sugar, we see it marketed as like no added sugars or low sugar. I am 100% convinced that that terminology or marketing will go away and be replaced with keto friendly or keto certified. Wow. Because as a dietitian and one that does media a lot, I get shipped a lot of products that from companies that want me to see their products or taste them. And I will say that I have seen more and more granola bars or like healthy cookies or crackers that no longer say low sugar, they say keto certified. And I'd have to look at the exact specifications, but they're close to a certain amount of net carbs and whatnot. So I think that's a huge trend we're going to keep seeing. Mm. However, when I look at the packages of those foods, they don't remind me of keto certified foods. Like if I was just to read the package, I'd be like, wow, this is super nutritious, nuts and seeds and coconut and whatever. So I think that that's something we're going to see. I think we'll continue to see the push for like less sugar, though people still eat more sugar, which is very confusing to me. Wow. But I think we'll still see the push for less sugar. And I think we'll start to see more of that. I wish you could see how many products have walked in my house that said keto certified or keto friendly is another terminology. So I think we might continue to see that trend as well in effort of trying to help people eat lower sugar. Is this going to have a profound impact on the companies that make cereals and good cookies and all that stuff? You know, it's a good question. But if you flash back to 2006, where they made a rule that you couldn't have, like to say you were trans fat free, you had to have like less than 0.5 grams per serving. And literally like every chip on the market and every cracker on the market had trans fat in it. Yeah. Oh, now like the majority of cookies and really all crackers don't have, they have less than 0.5 grams per serving. And 
Some of the chips I've tasted still taste like the same chips. So it is possible. A lot of it is improving the ingredients too, just changing your ingredient sources. You know, there's a lot, a lot of times when we talk about net carbs, the way they do that is by increasing the fiber of a product, which right. I'm going to be okay with, whether it's from chicory root fiber, just adding a more, you know, nuts or seeds or whatnot. So I think definitely diets we'll see about, but I think we'll continue to see the low sugar trend in regards to maybe more like keto friendly, keto certified and more whole plant-based. I think we'll still continue to see a lot of plant-based things moving forward as well. Okay, that's great. And I wanna also add to what you're saying that I have found there are quite a few products mm -hmm. which might've been taboo for me. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, muffins. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden there's almond flour. And I just saw a recipe today for one of my favorite foods growing up and up until the time I found out I had to watch what I was eating, pizza made with almond flour. Yeah. And a cauliflower crust? What? Cauliflower? Well, yeah, I know about the cauliflower crust. Yeah. It's going to be made of cauliflower before long. I think you're right. Everything is going to be made of cauliflower. You know what? I heard of, I, one of my friends has a sign and it says, if cauliflower can become pizza, my dear, you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's excellent. I love that phrase. If cauliflower can become pizza, you can do anything. <laughs> you can do anything. Power to the cauliflower, as they say. Yes. Right? Now, as you know, in a more serious way here, a lot of people have lost their jobs due to COVID. We have people like myself who are looking into second careers. We have people who are going to change jobs mm -hmm. because of things that have happened in their lives. Mm -hmm. We have people looking to invest and we have students, sort of like the kind of people you work with and also those registered dietitians. I know you work with them too. All of these people may be looking for some opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as you think about opportunity, because looking forward is also about opportunity, over the next few years, what might you counsel these people? Now, again, they're coming at it from different perspectives. Some right. are older, some are much, much younger. What would you suggest? I think in the world of nutrition, there's a ton of opportunity in the world of jobs because more and more companies and businesses and everything hire dietitians. I know dietitians at fast food restaurants. I know dietitians that work for major corporations. Obviously, there's dietitians in sports nutrition and wellness and health and just so many different areas. So in my field specifically, I think the jobs and the opportunities will only grow. And to our point of talking about people being overweight, like that often, I mean, sadly to say, my dad, we'd drive by new fast food restaurants or Mexican food restaurants in Texas. And my dad would always look at me and go, hey, job security. <laughs> so I think from that perspective, dietitians will always have a job. Being a registered dietitian takes a lot of school. So I always say it's kind of a terrible go back degree because you really got to have some time and effort to go back to become a registered dietitian. Because people think, I want to learn about food and diets. And you are, but you're also going to learn about organic chemistry and biochemistry and human metabolism. And what is your body doing with iodine? I mean, all of these things. Yes. So for students, I think if, if they're interested in that space, there's a ton of opportunity The the industry and the job field will only grow and it will only expand, which is awesome. And it, I mean, just, an, I've been a dietitian. Saturday was my 15th year anniversary of being a dietitian. You. Actually. Good for you. And just in the 15 years that I've been a dietitian, 
I mean, just the amount of growth and change in nutrition in general, in sports nutrition, I mean, I bet it's multiplied a hundred times. I mean, it's unbelievable. So that's exciting. I think that yeah. that's really great. And I will tell people a lot of specifically younger people really want to just get from point A to point B. And there's a lot to be said for just doing the work and getting in there and taking every experience you can and volunteering and, you know, really trying to learn the field. And I think that that's where you can meet a lot of people and can get a lot of different opportunity. I'm a big believer that no experience is a bad experience and you can use anything that you've ever encountered, be it work or volunteer, whatever to be used. And I think for people that are maybe older looking back, you know, maybe it's just educating yourself more on nutrition or taking classes so that you can educate people. You have to be really committed if you want to go back and be a registered dietitian. It's not the easiest path. It's a pretty significant science path. I love it. And I would never go back and change it. That it's a lot of science. It's a <laughs> lot of science. Chemistry in 20 years or yeah. one year, you might've forgotten a lot about it. So I do think though the industry is booming. There's a lot of opportunity for good science-based nutrition information. And I think that people need it and we need to be able to cut through the noise of media and trends and people saying the wrong information that can scare people, that can confuse people, that can misinform people and really get back to people about here's the science and here's what you can do with it to change your life, to change your family's life. Here are small changes you can put into place because I think it's that that Consi done consistently. Small changes made consistently over time is what really helps people be healthy and helps them live a well life. Like my dad, I mean, lucky for me, I'm very fortunate. I have two very healthy parents, 68 and 69. None, they don't take medicine. They don't have any disease. And really looking at that, my dad says, you know, the only way to live to be old is to live well and be old. And so I think that really trying to say, how can we help people? How can we help individuals and the, the world so that people can live longer, but that they can live longer and live well longer. So absolutely. And one of the great things about your profession, Amy, is again, it's a helping profession. Mm -hmm. Before we tell people how they can find out more about you, can you say just a few words about what might be considered allied professions? And what I'm thinking about here is, and I don't know a lot about them, food technology, creating new products. You talked about, you're seeing all these products now. They have keto labels on them. So is there opportunity in those areas as well? Definitely. So from the food science side of things, which doesn't necessarily require you to be a registered dietitian, like food science, food technology, even just the world of cooking healthy food. Like, you know, I mean, anyone can get on Instagram and cook healthy meals. You know, you don't have to be educating people on nutrition necessarily, but yeah, there's a lot of space. And I think the world of food service, the world of like, we talked about how do you take a, your favorite cookie and take out the sugar, make it still taste like your favorite cookie. Yeah. So I would say there's lots of different spaces and that's what's cool about nutrition. You have food science, you have food service, you have like the health and wellness side of things. You have the new, you know, the specific nutrition side of things. And there are a lot of opportunities, I think in all of those areas. So, I mean, I love this field. It, it's fun. It's growing. It's ever-changing. Nutrition's a much newer field than a lot of other science fields, even though it's been around. The science is changing, and we learn more. And the more we learn, the more we have to educate people. And that's why I think some people kind of get annoyed with nutrition because we change our recommendations ever so often. But it's because we find out more information. And I think that that's cool about the industry because 
we can continue to educate and get smarter and get better and improve what we're doing and then also how we're feeding and treating our bodies. I couldn't agree more. And we didn't even get into, but I know you would realize this too as an opportunity, the health professions, the sports training professions that all get involved with wellness and nutrition and all that stuff. All this ties into this. Mm -hmm. So much. What is the best way for our audience to find out more about you, Amy Goodson, your book, your consulting, your speaking, and all those millions of other things that you're doing right now work-related? Best spot is my website, amygoodsonrd.com. So amygoodsonrd, like registereddietitian.com. And then I am on social media. So on Instagram, you can find me at amyg.rd. And then on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you can just search Amy Goodson and I will pop up. <laughs> so like definitely out there, try to really work to put out good nutrition information, video content, research articles, consumer-friendly blog posts that people can apply nutrition and not just hear about it, but know what they can do with it. So I'd love to connect with anyone out there and you can email me off my website. It comes directly to me. So yes, feel free to visit amygoodsonrd.com. That's terrific. And I also have to say, I wish I had a last name as simple as Goodson. <laughs> I've had some guests on, they have very convoluted names. And to have a name like Amy Goodson, how wonderful. I don't even have to spell it for everybody like yeah, I often do pretty, for people. Spell. I tell people, I was like, they're like, I'm like, good son, like good daughter, good son. <laughs> Just like it sounds. You know, though, I don't know. I covet one of my friend's last names. She's a registered dietitian and her maiden last name, her real last name is Sugar. <laughs> would that not be the best thing ever to be a registered dietitian and your last name be Sugar? That would be fun. <laughs> I, love I always tease her. I'm like, I kind of covet your last name as a dietitian. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for sharing this great information, which is so important for everybody, as I said at the outset in my introduction, this is very important information that affects all of us, really, yes. in one way or another. Agreed. So I wish you nothing but the best of success, and thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been fun. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.